right. Uh, they're going to pass that. And uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to read a, a good chunk of scripture this morning out of starting in Matthew chapter 24. Um, so I'm going to give you a chance to pull up to that. Matthew 24, verse 36. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV today. And uh, Matthew 24 is positioned at the end of this long sermon that Jesus gives about the end times. And if you remember, we actually talked about part of this passage back when we did our series on Revelation last year. Uh, so if you're curious about some of the details about this, you can um, catch that series on our Bethel OKC podcast. Um, but we're going to pick up to the, the, the end of chapter 24, beginning of 25. I have a really interesting word today. Uh, and all week I was asking the Lord, what do you want me to preach about? And just crickets, just nothing. And then on Friday night he said, I want you to preach on this. And I thought, well, I'm glad you waited till the last minute because I probably would have found something else if he told me on Monday I would have <laughs> vetoed myself. So it must be the Lord. Um, all right, are we there? Are we ready? Matthew 24, verse 36. I'm going to read from the NIV. It says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Now, it's talking about when the Son of Man is going to come back, okay? Uh, but about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And I want to just make a quick note about this. You know, Jesus is being thrown a surprise party someday, and he doesn't know when it's going to happen. And it's really interesting to consider that Jesus is here among us right now. He's living within us, right? He's at work on the earth. But someday he will come back in a different form. And, it will, and it's, I'm just fascinated by thinking about this. And he doesn't even know. The Father has hidden this time from him. The Father has hidden it from everyone. And yet Jesus finds perfect peace and trust in that place. And I don't know about you, but I've been in this place in my own personal life where I've been saying, God, your timing doesn't really make sense to me. And the Lord goes, that's okay. It's not a requirement. It's not a requirement for you to understand what I'm doing. And I think there's something about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father in the way that he knows he will return. He trusts in the timing of it, but he is at peace at the same time. And I just want to say to all of you guys that are contending for things, that are, are waiting for things, that are in that process, to really challenge yourself to step into the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. I think that's what we're being invited into, that we would be like God. We would be like Jesus in the way he relates to God. Perfect peace and absolute assurance that the good thing will happen. It's interesting. It's not the point for today, but that's a freebie. Okay, so verse 37, as it, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill. One will be taken and the other left. And before we, we finish that phrase, I want to make a note about something. There's an interesting thing Jesus is pointing to here, that when the end happens, when he comes back, your associations aren't going to matter. And this is really interesting because in the way that people lived in this time period, I've shared this with you before, they actually lived in houses where they shared a kitchen they had communal things, so the handmill would be something that multiple houses would share. 
So me and my neighbors, we would be out there together. We would be preparing for our families. And there is this association, a tenderness, a closeness in that type of proximity, right? And what Jesus is saying in this is, look, at the end of the day, you will stand on your own. You, you won't be able to grab the person with you to bring them, right? It, it's it's going to happen so fast that we won't be able to have any type of moment to say, wait a second, my friend down the road, I've been meaning to invite her. It's, it'll be too late at that point. I just think that's really interesting. And he says, verse 42, again, we're in chapter 24, verse 42. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, when you do not expect him. This is not a one-time thing for Jesus. This is a chronic part of his personality. Amen? He is always doing things we don't expect him to do. He is the same yesterday, today, forever, and yet we never know when he's going to do something. Right? And when I read this and when you read this, I really want to challenge you. The New Testament is designed to display the love of God, the tender heart of God. In love, sometimes things are difficult, right? So it's not just that he's always passive, that he's just, you know, SpongeBob when he has a daydream and he's running from rainbow cloud to cotton candy. And it's not like that, right? But Jesus has this, he is, what he's showing us is the love of God and the Father's heart in the new covenant where we are free from striving to perform. And when we read these texts, we have to read it through that lens. So we're not reading this taking on some sort of fear. We're not reading this taking on some sort of false sense of spiritual responsibility. We're reading it to understand God's heart. Does this make sense? I think one of the things that happens in the body of Christ is we read this and we read it through what we perceive as the fear of the Lord, which causes this sense of condemnation that causes us to not engage with what he's actually saying. This is an invitation to you and I. This is an invitation to know God. What we're going to see in a moment is the whole point, I think, of this whole passage is, is Jesus equipping his followers to understand how important a relationship with him really is. So when we read this through the lens of the law, through the lens of religion, through the lens of the old covenant, what we hear is a father saying something bad. You know that best friend you like? Not going to make it. <laughs> have you ever felt that way? And we feel the sense of panic, right? You have to come with me to church like today. And then and we end up acting not like Jesus because we're afraid of what's going to happen in their life. I'm not saying you shouldn't be aware of what's going to happen in their life. What I'm saying is, can we challenge ourselves to read this in light of who we know God actually is? Amen? Can we challenge ourselves to go higher into who he is as a loving father? All right, let's keep going. Because this isn't even the passage I'm preaching about today. Okay, so uh, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. 
It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces, ouch, and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase, cut him into pieces, is actually like a, a cultural vernacular of the time, and it's, a, it's like a big deal. It was like, you will be punished, you'll be outcasted. I don't necessarily think it's literal. It could be corrected someday, but I don't think that's what it means. And what Jesus is saying here for you and I is an invitation to live holistically, right? If you know when your master is coming, you can put on whatever show you want to put on, right? But it's when the master shows up at his house, when you don't know he's coming, years ago, I won't tell you all the details of the story, but it's probably 15 years ago, Grant and I had a couple people living in our house, and one of them was really good at lying, and uh, she, she was saying to us some things, and I was asking her questions like, how are you doing in these different areas? And she's like, oh, it's great, it's great. And then we had a friend come into town that we were, we were out of town. She knew that because she was living in our house. And we had a friend come in, and he was picking something up from the house. And so we had told her, hey, at some point today, he's going to stop by. He had a key to drop in and just get, I don't know, something silly. And so he calls us the next day, and he says, I've been really nervous to tell you this, but um, let's just spare the details and say that when I got to your house, the person living with you was doing things you would not be okay with. And I was like, hmm, okay. So, of course, we started having some conversations to clarify different things, and, and what became clear was when the master showed up, and she was not aware there were things you just can't pretend aren't happening. And what I think is interesting is if we, what Jesus is asking us is if we are living truly before the Lord, we have no fear when he comes. I'm not even saying that you're living the right. I'm not even talking about making sure you're completely morally right by some checklist. What I'm saying is you are authentically who you are, right? The problem in this parable Jesus is talking about is that the, that master, that uh, servant, was being one way to the master and one way to the servants that he was leading, right? And the Lord is saying, look, that's not good. Like when the master shows up, I actually think if we're reading this the way God is saying it, I actually think he's going, look, I already know. So just be who you are when I get there. It's no surprise. Does this make sense? I know it's hot in here. It's not just the Holy Spirit. But let's just keep going. So this is where we're going to really get into today. Help us, Lord. So verse chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Has anybody ever heard a sermon on the ten virgins? Anybody? Great. We're not alone. Okay. This is a story in the Bible. I was sharing this with someone last night, and they were like, I've never heard this story, and I was chuckling because you know how sometimes our brain just bypasses things that we don't want to read about. But here we go. The parable of the ten virgins. So I, I read the part before because I want you to understand this is one continual thought from Jesus. Okay? Not two different things. There's a chapter denotion there, but that doesn't mean it's a discontinued thought. So he says, verse, the one verse before, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then we get in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. 
The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Look to your neighbor and say, sounds about right. Verse 6. At midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell the oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And then Jesus transitions out of that story and says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, if we're reading this, remember, we've got to read this through the lens of a loving father, right? This is not meant to provoke fear. This is not meant to provoke panic. This is meant to bring understanding, okay? So let's just talk just for a second about the cultural implications of this story. So I don't know if you're familiar with uh, um, weddings at this time period, but there was, it was a big deal. Weddings actually lasted about seven days, Uh, we're just going to get into some really awkward things here in a second because this is important to understand. What they would do is, like, like this family and this family would decide babies are getting married, right? We're arranging this. And then the, the groom's family would have a processional through the city, and they would shout, here comes the bridegroom. And it was a whole to-do. And the whole family and his groomsmen and, you know, just all these people would come in this parade to the bride's house. And when they got to the bride's house, they would shout, here comes the bridegroom. Look, he's here. And the bride, who had gotten ready, she had adorned herself with all kinds of jewelry. Her jewelry was part of her dowry, so, like, they would go with her. She'd wear it on her head, on her shoulders, on her ankles sometimes, too, wear a veil. And then she and her bridesmaids and her family would process with the groom's family back to the groom's house, where the whole bridal party would wait as the new couple would consummate their marriage. Okay, some of us are thankful we're Americans. And then they would begin a seven-day party. This is what it was like for every person in Israel that got married, okay? So when Jesus tells this story, he is talking about something that was a regular thing. I don't know how many people there were, so we don't know how often there were, there were marriages. But we know that this is, they would know instantly. I know exactly what you're talking about. So each person in the bridal party had a job, Okay. So the ten virgins here are basically her bridesmaids, and they would be people who were not yet married, and they would want to be married someday, and how they perform their duties as a bridesmaid would give them better or less standing in how they would be able to be married, the type of person they could be married to. Remember the story of Mary and Joseph, and Mary is considered this like very pure, like a prize wife. You guys remember this? She was like selected. She was honorable. That's what everybody would want to be. It gives you a better chance at a good life. So what would happen is the groom would come at night. This all would happen in the evening. And more often than not, he would be delayed. So in the parable Jesus tells, he tells a story of the groom being heavily delayed. And you and I might be thinking, well, no wonder they fell asleep. But the part that's important for us to understand is that grooms were regularly delayed, and here's why. 
The groom's family would haggle over how many gifts to give to the bride's family, basically trying to decide how much worth she had and how much they were going to give, and there was a, a bit of an exchange. So if you can imagine, if you have a big family, if you can imagine your entire extended family trying to come up with a conclusion on anything, let alone the price of a human being, sometimes that's going to turn into a heated discussion. I imagine Aunt Barbara being like, look, they only gave me three goats when I got married, and we're not doing that to her. You know, and then Mildred's over there going, well, she's only worth two in my eyes, and they're haggling. And the groom is going, look, guys, I got to pick up my sweetheart. And you know no one has the power to control the whole family when they're all together being themselves, right? It's no different for the Israelites thousands of years ago. And so there would be this haggling thing that would come on, and sometimes the groom would just be very delayed while the families worked out the details of the contract. The bride was expected to be ready at any point he would come. The bride had to be ready for him to show up on time, and the bride had to be waiting and willing to wait until he came whenever that might be. I don't know, 2 a.m., 4 a.m., usually while the sun was still down. This is a very intense situation. I don't know about you, but I would like to know when my wedding is going to start, you know? <laughs> because my makeup, right? Like, I can't last in this for like eight hours. I can't just sit around sleeping in it, hoping to still look as good when you wake up. This is the reality that Jesus is pointing to in this story. So a couple of other things I want you to know. So I, I preached a couple weeks ago about Jesus, the light, and the darkness, and I talked to you guys about these little lamps. So I brought it today for you. This is a very typical Middle Eastern lamp. And uh, in, in that time period. And so it's very small. Can you see that? The big hole you would pour the oil into, and the little hole would have a wick that sticks out of it. Okay? And so they would carry these in their hand all the time. They had little ledges on their wall that they would put them on to light the room. This was very normal. So when we read this story, most people would read and think, oh, this is the type of lamp that these girls had with them. And obviously they need extra oil because this is not making it all night long. But what I discovered, and I can't prove this definitively, but what I discovered is actually, in the evenings specifically with weddings, they would use more like torches. So they had a stick with a cloth they would soak in oil, wrap it around the stick, light it on fire, and it would last sometimes maybe only 15 minutes. Okay? When it was done, they'd dip it in the oil again, relight it on fire. So I think that's what's actually happening in this parable. And if you can imagine that, the implication of having extra oil is vital. Does this make sense? Because you don't know how long you're going to be waiting there. You and I read this story, and we almost fault the groom for the bridesmaids being left out of the party. Do you read it like that? We almost make an excuse for these little girls because they're virgins. They're young. And we're going, well, they fell asleep. That's normal. And they didn't know he was going to take so long. But they actually had been given a job, and it was very normal for the, bride, for the groom to be delayed. So if we're going to read this accurately, we have to understand the difference between the five wise and the five foolish was in their understanding and their choice to honor the role they had been given. The truth is, and we see in the story, there's no excuses for them running out of oil. There's, there's not an excuse. When they get to, when they wake up and they hear the processional coming. So what, what this probably was like in the parable, it's not a true story, obviously, but what Jesus was alluding to is they're asleep. They're standing outside the bride's door. This is their job. Keep the torch ready 
announce to the bride, you have like one job, you know, and then you're going to lead her in this parade and that's it. You're off. You're done. And so they're asleep. That's okay. Jesus isn't faulting them for that because even the wise ones fell asleep. But when they wake up, the five foolish ones run to go buy some oil. And in that process, they have deeply insulted the bride. This is what this is about. They have deeply insulted the honor of the wedding moment. They have deeply insulted their chosen job. And that's why they're not allowed in. When they get there, it's a wedding reception like you and I have been to. You can get in and out. It's not like they barred anyone else from coming. This wasn't like, you know, I'm not going to finish that sentence. When they get there, the master of the ceremony says to them, we don't know you. And what he's saying is, where you were five hours ago considered honored, close, connected people to the bride. What you have done to dishonor this process has caused us to say, you are not close. That's what this is about. You're not getting in. We don't know you. When we look at this from a spiritual implication, there's some serious things we have to draw from this, right? Because when Jesus is saying, you don't know the hour, you don't know the day, and we begin to have a little bit of panic, and we're going, I sure hope I'm doing all the right things. I, I, I said a cuss word yesterday, Lord, forgive me, what do I have to do? We kind of go into like, Hail Mary, you know, and all these different things. Give me hoops to jump through, because I, I want to be in on that feast. When God is looking at these 10 girls, he's not looking at their human limitation. He's looking at their spiritual posture. He's not saying, you fell asleep, you did something bad. We humans, we need sleep. Does this make sense? What he's saying is you chose not to honor where I had put you. You chose not to honor the role. We could even say you chose not to honor the giftings, the investment God had given. The very next sentence after telling this story, God goes into the story of the talents, the parable of the talents, right? They're connected. It's the same thing. Look, I have given something to you, and my expectation is that you're going to steward it, that you're going to honor it. And if you choose not to honor it, what you've actually done is chosen not to honor me. And if you choose not to honor me, we're not actually friends. Does that make sense? When I hear the Lord doing this, I hear him saying this in such a kind tone. It's like the definition of good boundaries, where a great boundary is, look, I love you. I want to know you, but I recognize that you have a destructive pattern. And when you try to push that destructive pattern on me, that's not fair. And so a good boundary, if you've ever read the book on boundaries or you've studied this uh, for yourself, then you know that a boundary is saying, look, here's what I'm going to do. And it has nothing to do with the other person, really. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, here's a good boundary for us. <laughs> if you honor the things I honor, I'll bring you along, even if you fell asleep. I'll bring you along, even if you, if you didn't do it perfectly. But if you choose to say what you care about, I'm not going to care about, then Jesus goes, then we have to be honest and say, are we on the same page? What he's looking for is, is not perfection, it's the posture of our hearts. I see these five wise virgins and I see them saying, no matter what, I will get this right. 
I don't know how big of an extra jar they brought, but these women knew sometimes the boys are late. <laughs> they knew it. They're probably going, you know, if this is a true story, they're probably going, remember so-and-so? That guy was there like 5 a.m., like right before the sun came up. We got to be ready. They took it seriously. And I think you and I have to ask ourselves, are we taking it seriously? Are we taking this life that God has given us, are we, are we taking it seriously? There is a lot that's riding on our obedience. I think we don't want to embrace that. <laughs> but there's a lot that's riding in our obedience. So many of the parables that Jesus tells are about being obedient. So many of them. And here's what I think you have to note. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, this feels like so intense. How could I ever do that? How could I fulfill that? Here's what you need to know. In this parable and in the parable of the ten talents, there is no ambiguity. The master was very clear on what the job was. Does this make sense? So some of us are thinking about this and our, in our, we're trying to figure out how to apply it to our life. And we're thinking, I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And there feels like there's ambigu- ambiguousness. It feels like there's ambiguity there. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. These 10 women were supposed to be doing. The three servants in the parable of the ten talents, of the talents, they knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing. Take this money, treat it as your own. Does this make sense? So I say this because I want us to debunk what comes up in our flesh that makes us freak out. I want us to debunk all of that and actually get honest and say, what is it that God has told you to do? And if he has not told you something yet, then you're asking a different question. But if you know in your heart what he's told you to do, then the question becomes, what are you doing with that? Are you prepared for the task that he's given you? In the new covenant, I just really believe this deeply. In the new covenant, we experience the grace of God. And as we experience the grace of God, there will always be a temptation to exploit the grace of God. When we look at the loving nature of Jesus, there will always be a temptation to say, just one more time, I know you're going to forgive me. Just a little more sleep. I know it's the, it's the foolish lady saying, look, just give me some of your oil. <laughs> I want to be here. I want to do this. I just don't have enough for myself. Give me some of yours. And I think we need to really challenge ourselves to not, to not exploit the grace of God. Um, I have a, a personal podcast. I don't share about it a whole lot, but I have a personal podcast called The Art of Being You where um, I share a lot of discipleship thoughts. And I did one recently, and I, I want to share a little bit about it today. And um, it was on the difference between gifts and rewards. And recently the Lord's been talking to me. This probably started about a month or two ago on the difference between spiritual gifts and, and spiritual rewards. And a lot of us, we have this tendency to to assume that the gifts of the Spirit have been given to us because of something we have done, like we have earned them. And so when we do that, we see something like this morning where the gift of healing is happening and people are being made whole and things are happening, right? And we could say, well, that person is able to see that happen because they did something in their life and God rewarded them with that ability. But that's not what a spiritual gift is. The Holy Spirit wants to flow through everyone, whether you fell asleep with enough oil or whether you didn't. But the rewards, there are rewards in the kingdom of God as well. They're just different than the gifts. And most of us don't talk about the rewards 
Most of us don't think about the rewards. Most of us feel guilty about the rewards. But Hebrews tells it, God rewards those who diligently seeks them. Those who are faithful in the little will be given, become rulers over much. There is this theme of rewards, but the rewards are always related to our, our faithfulness and our willingness to be prepared for the task God has asked us to do. Does this make sense? The gifts are free. Take them. Use them. But as we, if we want to grow, if we want to become more responsible, if we want to be in that party as it's happening and not sent away, it's because we've chosen to honor the things that God honors. We've chosen to take his way as our own. Does this make sense? There's a lot of nuance in that. But here's my challenge to you. What is the oil in your life? Look, if you're given a job, help usher the bride to her, to her wedding. An amazing job. What is the oil that you're bringing with you? What is the overflow of your life? What this parable speaks to me more than anything probably is that the oil in that jar is expensive and costly. Emotionally, spiritually, it's expensive. These five wise virgins were not willing to just give up their oil because it cost them something. I think it's so interesting that Jesus uses this phrase when he's telling the story, go buy some of your own. I may have paraphrased that wrong. It says, yeah, instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. In the kingdom of God, the, the oil is expensive. Thank you, Garland. Very expensive. If you want a vat, a jar that can keep a torch lit every 15 minutes all night long, you need a lot. You need a lot. And I think that Jesus makes no bones about it. He tells this parable speaking directly to the minds of his followers to say this. Look, if you want to be with me on this journey, you're going to have to pay something. Other scriptures, he says, you're going to have to pick up your cross. Other scriptures, he says, you're going to have to deny your family. We're like, what, God, didn't you invent family? Isn't family your all-time goal? He's like, yes, but when your family is the hurdle... When your family and their willingness to keep you from what you know God is saying, when your family is the, the struggle, when that's where you're warring against, then God says, look, let them go. Ah. A lot of times he'll bring it all back around, but he wants to see, are you willing to follow me? What's your oil? And what does it cost you? When I think about my life, I think about how expensive some of the oil I have is. <laughs> Things I would really never want to do again, unless the Holy Spirit was with me as he was the first time. And what I feel like the Lord wants us to get from this this morning, just as a body, is this challenge to go and buy more. Are you willing to go and buy more? Are you willing? Are you willing? And I don't even know what, it's, what it is. It's going to be a specific assignment to each of you guys, right? It's going to look different from me than it does to you, and that's good, and that's okay. But are you willing to buy more? Because we know Jesus is coming back. And we don't know when, 
And there's a lot of things we could look at and say, well, it could be soon. But in the same way, every 100 years, there's been a lot of convincing things that would say it's been soon. But what God is grading you on is not do you believe. It's, it's like, I think this is such a great parable for us. He's not saying. What he's saying is that we cannot allow the delay in his coming to cause us to undervalue what he's doing. Does this make sense? If I think it's going to be another 10,000 years before the world is over, then I don't steward my life and my children and my future grandchildren in the same way. Because I think they got time. If I think it's going to be three or four more generations until he comes back, then I kind of take the gas off, the foot off the gas a little bit, right? I think that's what he's saying here is, look, be ready no matter what. He's coming back. So here's, here's my final challenge to you. If the end was today, how would that affect you? If he showed up right now, we just read, two in the field, two at the millstone, that's it, right? You don't get to go, wait, I was learning this. <laughs> wait, she wasn't done preaching. I know none of you would say that, but. If the master just showed up right now, how does he find you? And I don't say this as a condemnation. I actually say this as a liberation for your soul. There is an invitation for you to come into this place where you are, are stewarding the life that God has given you without the weight of fear, without the weight of striving, without doing it, trying to prove something to God so that you can make sure you get in there, but you're just ready and available and aligned correctly. Does this make sense? So I'll just ask you again, if the end was right now, if the end was today, how would it find you? And if you're thinking about this and you're thinking, it doesn't find me well, then the next question is simple. What are you going to do about it? The answer is not to go into self-condemnation and, and trying to force yourself to become something. Transformation in the kingdom comes through the lens of surrender. Look, God, I'm not doing a very good job with my life. <laughs> so I'm letting you come in. That's what it looks like. How do we get to that point? Well, we let him do what he does. We give up. We tap out. We cry uncle. And there's times in life where we, we have to make really hard choices, but that's the buying of the oil. Does that make sense? So my challenge to you is if you're saying, look, if I'm not where I want to be, I'm not prophesying to you that the end is coming this year. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Nobody knows. And anybody that thinks they know is wrong because Jesus doesn't even know. But what I'm saying is we can live in a way that's really free as we just expect him to come. But the only way we do that is if we're holistically the same person. We're not afraid that the master is going to show up. That's, that's my heart for you guys more than anything. So what I want to do is I'm just going to kind of clear some space here in the front. And maybe we can turn the lights down a little bit just to kind of give you a, a little anonymity. And I just want to encourage you to, to do, some, do some work with the Holy Spirit if you need it. I know for me there's things that I need to repent of. There's things that I need to, there's some more oil I want to buy. If he was coming back today, there's some more oil I want to buy. And I'm okay with that. And I say that to you to say, look, it's okay. No matter where you're at, it's okay to feel that way. But I, I really want to invite you, if there's things you need to repent of to the Lord, do that. If there's things you need to confess, do that. 
Because ultimately, our human limitation is not the problem. It's the heart. It's our heart posture. Amen? So I'm just going to pray, and then I'm just going to leave this open, and I'll be available if you guys need some prayer. If you want to grab somebody else to pray for you, that's fine as well. But Holy Spirit, Lord, we just welcome your leading this morning. And we welcome your grace that empowers us to buy the expensive stuff. We welcome your grace that that compels us to take seriously what you've called us to in this life. And Lord, I just pray that as we come before you, that you would speak clearly. For those that are feeling ambiguous about what their life and their purpose even is, Lord, would you begin to speak that clearly? And for those that are clear, Lord, would you would you speak your word to them as well? Oh.